A written transcript of this episode is provided by Starburst. For more information, you can see the show notes. Welcome to Data Mesh Radio with your host, Scott Hurlman, sponsored by Starburst. This is Adrian Estala, VP and Field CDO at Starburst and host of Data Mesh TV. Starburst is the leading contributor to Trino, the open source project, and the Data Mesh for Dummies book that I co-wrote with Colleen Tarto and Andy Mott. To claim your free book, head over to starburst.io. Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Hurlman. I started this podcast as a place for practitioners to get useful information about Data Mesh, and we're at over 200 episodes. I've now left Data Stacks, you know, thanks for all their help in founding things, but I've left to start Data Mesh Understanding, which is also helping practitioners to get to the information needed to do Data Mesh well. We have free implementer introduction and roundtable programs, in addition to the more advanced yet affordable offerings. So please do get in touch if you're looking for more information on how to do, how to approach Data Mesh. Just check datameshunderstanding.com for more info. There's also a helpful organization of past Data Mesh radio episodes there if you want to dig into specific topics rather than digging through 200 different episodes. So with that, let's hit the funky intro music and listen to what you'll hear about in this interview episode. Bottom line up front, what are you going to hear about and learn about in this episode? I interviewed Sonny Jaisingani and Simon Massey, who are both principal consultants at the consulting company East Synergy. They have been involved in multiple data mesh implementations, including at a large bank. This episode also could have been titled Aligning Incentives, Reducing Friction, and Continuous Improvement in Value Delivery, but it doesn't roll off the tongue very well, does it? <laughs> from here forward in this summary, I will refer to all opinions as if they were being from both Simon and Sonny rather than trying to specifically call out who said which part, as that leads to confusion. I also recommend on this one specifically reading the show notes, as I am only covering about uh, half of the key points. So a few of those key takeaways, thoughts from Sonny and Simon's points of views. Number one, we are still early in our learnings about how to do data mesh. There is still a ton left to learn, which is why people should share what they are learning more broadly. Helping others will help you as well. You'll get people to give you feedback and things like that. Number two, data mesh, whether it's your overall implementation, your platform, your data products, your ways of working, etc. It's all about evolution, incremental improvement, iteration, etc. You don't have to get it perfect up front to drive immense value in the long run. Acclimatize people to iteration and lower the pain of change. Number three, once you start to get into a groove with your organizational ways of working, that's when the value force multiplier in doing data mesh starts to take off. But it takes time to really figure out how to do data mesh in your organization. Number four, your data mesh will inherently have a huge scope. 
Try to keep that scope as limited as possible as you are getting moving, especially in the near term. It is very, very easy to try to feature stuff, you know, stuff all the features you can, your data mesh implementation, especially the platform and doubly especially when you're early on. Keep complexity out where possible and focus on moving the ball forward, not spending a lot of effort preparing to move the ball forward. Number five, if you can't show value from your early data mesh implementation work in one to two quarters, you are quite likely to lose any momentum and thus at least a portion of your funding, if not all of it. Find ways to deliver continuous incremental value. Number six, in Simon and Sonny's experience, the most technologically sophisticated domains wanted to do things around data themselves and were often among the last domains to participate in a data mesh implementation. Don't be shocked if this happens in your organization. Number seven, also on buy-in, seeing is believing. Many domains will be skeptical about all of this. Find those domains who are willing and work together to deliver great value. Many of those initial skeptics will then want to participate once they've seen what can happen. Number eight, cloud economics and scale are really crucial to achieving value from data mesh. The cost of failure and the scale of failure are much smaller, so we can iterate quickly and take more risks. On-prem data mesh is probably not worth the effort in most cases. Number nine, similarly, data mesh means pursuing high chance of failure but high reward opportunities around data because it's so much cheaper and easier. Teams don't have to be nearly as worried about an analytical data product being a failure. It wasn't months of time and huge cost. It was a few weeks and not expensive. Number 10, handoffs between teams, especially where context is crucial, are massive friction points or bottlenecks. Have the producers and consumers directly work together and, and look to keep away from the highly specialized teams that have kind of pervaded all of the way people have done data for the last few decades. Number 11, Use the phrase analytical data product or equivalent. You know, I typically say mesh data product. If you only say, quote unquote, data product, people often think of other types of data products and aren't as focused on delivering something for your data mesh, something with an analytical focus. <laughs> Number 12, focus on getting everything out of the way to make technology the easy part. The technology aspect is hard, but it's the easiest part of data mesh. So no one said data meshes for the faint of heart or weak of will. That's when you say the technology part's not going to be the easiest, and yet it's still the easiest part. And finally, uh, number 13, I just wanted to emphasize that Sonny and Simon gave some good advice on working with teams across the data maturity and capability spectrum for driving buy-in, as well as they gave a, a good list of about 10 anti-patterns that you can keep an eye out for. So you can either check those in the show notes or you know, obviously listening through the episode, I think will be useful for all of you. Okay, enough of just me. Let's hear from our awesome guest in this interview episode.
Okay, very, very excited for today's episode. I've got uh, Sonny Jaisingani and Simon Massey here, who are both principal consultants at the consultancy East Synergy. Um, and we're going to be talking about a lot of different things, but um, both Sonny and Simon have worked on a couple of different data mesh implementations. They're, they're kind of working with um, a client on their third of, of uh, you know, kind of note and, and have gone through this a couple of times. So they've got a lot to talk about. What does this actually look like in, in action? Where, where are your uh, likely friction points? Where are your likely pain points? And how can uh, we move forward? And, and um, what, what would maybe they have done differently now that they've learned this so that people can start to figure out how to, to head down those, those paths? And they, they've also put out some good content, which we'll link to in the show notes as well. But um, with that as kind of the background as to the conversation, if uh, you two don't mind uh, giving a bit of background on yourself. Uh, Sonny, do you want to start? Yep. Hi, I'm Sunny Jaisingani. Um, I'm a principal consultant with the Synergy. Um, and I've spent most of my career working on various data implementations. Um, started with the good old warehouses and the marts and data lakes. And in the recent years, focused on data mesh. Um, quite excited about the topic. It's evolutionary as a pattern, and there's still a lot to be discovered and learned in that space. And very keen to share with the community, really, what we've learned. Right. So, yeah, that's me, really. And thank you for listening. Um, Simon? Hi, yeah, I'm Simon Massey. I'm also a principal consultant at eSynergy. Um, my background is less data and more sort of um, microservices. Um, I've worked on... Um, insurance trading platforms that are based on products and those delegated from domains. I've worked on sort of government space, trying to get lots of digital teams, do digital transformation. I've worked in the DevOps space, trying to bring agility. And throughout this sort of data was seen as like the, the last frontier, the one that was really, really hard to do. Um, specifically, I did some stream-based systems for some large American investment banks and some giant sub-ledger integration projects where I was working on the sort of the code and the microservices. And there's always a bit of a problem about like, well, you know, getting the data at scale and, and testing with data was always a real, a real challenge. Um, so when Data Mesh came up and we were working on this together, Sunny and I, it really opened my eyes like, oh, there's a new, there's a new opportunity here to apply to analytical data. Some of the things we learned in the rest of how, how we deal with coding at scale and organization at scale. Yeah. So uh, recent years, Data Mesh has been my, my uh, obsession. <laughs> and that that's actually really common is it's it's almost 50-50 when I'm talking to people that are kind of leading implementations as to um that somebody's come from a microservices background or a data background because the microservices it's like hey we've figured out how to do this somewhat well at least on the operational plane and so um we're we're trying to take those learnings and actually apply them to data but then the data people it's like okay we we know where the actual really hidden challenges are around you know how do you do the interoperability how do you do the data modeling how do you do like all these these things as to the large scale, it's like, hey, let's actually do this so we can have change happen within data and the change isn't so painful and that, that we have um, the the loose coupling. But then <laughs> if you just try and do loose coupling, then nothing ends up connected to each other. All all the strings that you have, if they're if everything's moving around, all the strings get knotted together or, or cut or anything like that and all your ties uh, don't don't work. So um 
it's a, it's a visual med- metaphor, which doesn't work that well. Uh, you can see my hands, but the, the audience can't. But um, so w- with that as, as kind of the background, why don't we talk about, um, is there anything before we jump in as to some kind of high level little things where you'd say, hey, everybody, these are going to be a couple of the the things that you will are probably going to run into that you're not expecting or something like that. And then we can start to talk about what this really looks like in action as well. Yeah, totally. So I keep repeating myself in every forum I speak at and every conversation almost is the mesh, uh, the data mesh is uh, about 25% technology and 75% org design ways of working um, and the likes, right? Um, and it's a key aspect to appreciate quite early on in the journey that this isn't just about. So that, although that mesh is about uh, innovation within data and elasticity within data and treating data as an asset, but ultimately without the ways of working and the org design to support it, it's actually never going to achieve the goal it's trying to. So as long as we have a keen eye on that and are willing to go with the chain that it introduces, I think you will find more and more success. And all throughout our talk and obviously all our experience with this has been as soon as the organization start adopting the modern ways of working within the data space, that's when you actually start seeing the benefits. Um, so Simon, would you like to add anything to that? Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I'd say that one of the biggest challenges is ways of working are so entrenched and, and the decision makers involved in, you know, getting a mesh up and running, sponsoring a mesh, making sure a mesh is safe and secure and, and, and governed. Those people are, you know, very familiar with the old ways of working. And it's just so difficult to get that sort of shift to new ways of working when you're thinking, you know, hey, it's a data mesh, it needs to be governed and I'm responsible for making sure it's, you know, well managed and people sign things off and yeah we we you know how should we say old habits die hard right and it, it's you know, building a data mesh getting it used and also getting all the stakeholders uh, comfortable with the idea you can have agility with data that you don't need a massive upfront waterfall project to get going you need to sort of uh, you know do things a little and often and, and do things in an evolutionary manner but you can still have all the things you want you can still have compliance and safety and governance and it's it's back to that microservice analogy it's like you know, operationally, microservices is very complicated, but because you do more things in parallel with, you know, and you have to govern those things, you have to find those things, you have to discover the things, you have to version those things, um, and that that's unfamiliar to a lot of people. Um, and so, getting data people to along that journey where they're responsible for making this thing safe and secure and useful, and they have to learn the new ways of working, that that's something where you need you need to find people who understand the community, understand the engagement, understand the old and the new to sort of. Uh, not get it uh, this the ship sort of crashed on the uh, the reef of old habits yeah i think that and and kind of uh, a hidden underlying thing in both of your statements is um monolith to microservice on the operational plane you don't go in with a hammer and smash it up and just go now you're all sharded versus you start to think about like hey are we trying to swallow the whole elephant. We're going to change the way the entire organization works, or are we going to start to work through? We're, we're going to share that this is where we're headed, but that we're not, you know, how do we hold people's hands with change? And how do we actually um, get people comfortable that this change, it's going to have some pain, but it's going to have a huge benefit and, and incentivization and all that stuff. So I, I think that does transition well into the question of, driving buy-in and, and change management just in general. Um, 
how have you seen, you know, you've worked on, on a few of these. What has been the, the pattern that you're starting to see emerge? Is it that, you know, it's got to be through a C-level exec kind of that is the person that's communicating or is it that they are the exec sponsor and that you can have people that are kind of more at the director, senior director or, or whatever level instead of just the, the CDO level or how, how are you seeing that driving buy-in initially start to work? And then how would you tell people to start to think about their change management? What do you actually change first, right? Yeah. 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 No, so so it's an interesting one actually that because we've seen two completely different approaches to this. Um, uh, one is uh, around where our first implementation was identifying those early adopters and believers, um, and go- taking them along the journey, uh, proving value, and then getting the uh, senior uh, senior management and the C-suite to actually endorse it and sponsor it in a more holistic way. Um, but um, you've also see examples where actually the overall organizational vision already aligns to having a mesh implementation, which makes it a little bit easier. But then you have to go around looking for those early adopters who will actually stand behind it, right? So you see both approaches. Um, I think it eventually converges, right? So our first experience was that we proved out a bunch of use cases with the mesh, with the early adopters, got the sponsorship, and then they became an overall mandate for the organization that mesh is what we are doing line up and get it done. Whereas uh, the alternate approach where there is a top-down mandate without having proven anything, I think it actually is a lot harder because ultimately if people don't want to do it or teams are not keen on doing it, right, it becomes a lot longer lead time to actually prove the value of the mesh. So then looking for very thin slices, end-to-end lean use cases to actually do this becomes a bit harder. So both the approaches work, but ultimately I think if it comes through ground-up innovation and proving it and then uh, getting the sponsorship, I think it's a lot more sustainable that way. But, but at the same time, you know, getting permission to set up a data mesh is 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 quite a quite a, quite a thing. Um, so in that context, that Sony alludes to, we were in a, a very large uh, financial service uh, organization which encouraged, encouraged innovation. They were trying to get engineers to innovate with a certain amount of percent of the time to see what they did, and it's from that sort of. Uh, grassroots innovation that the idea of, of building uh, a data mesh like this was even before the data mesh terminology came out actually um, there's a funny story about that um, we were working for a director ThoughtWorks were working for the director and about a year before as uh, Jermac published the paper um, the director was talking about you know data agility and they said oh try this new kind of approach right schema read etc and so and so uh, you know there was uh, a mandate to do innovation. This is one of the things we looked at innovation, and we sort of started on on the data mesh journey. Um, yeah, so so not not organizations, all organizations, going to be blessed like that. I mean, hope I've worked a number of banks where they have had innovation, um, you know, labs, etc. It's very difficult to break it out there. So so if you're going to if you know if that happens, brilliant. If not, it's about C suite having a strategy, 
And then to Sonny's point, it's about connecting, finding the people who are actually, those busy people who have the data knowledge, who can see that this is going to make their life better, despite the fact they've got a huge amount of work they all need to do, who are committed to try and get the first few use cases going, one or two use cases. That That's really, really critical, connecting the vision at the top with the, the knowledge of the ground and, and getting the believers. And, you know, you don't have an infinite amount of time to prove it out. You have to do something. This is about innovation with data. If you can't get things done in, you know, a couple of quarters, you know, people are going to fizzle out. They're going to run out of energy. It's going to run out of time. Um, but once you get to the point where you have like three or four, you know, things sort of seem to be succeed, um, then you have like a snowball effect. Um, so yeah, in, in all environments, we've seen quite, quite a skeptic going, we don't really want to be involved in this data mesh thing because we're busy doing our own work. But once you have a few um, key use cases go in, say machine learning, et cetera, and you have some big internal uh, domains that are getting some value out of it, then it becomes unstoppable. It's like, well, those guys are on it, and these use cases are on it. Why, why are you dragging your heels, right? And um, a funny sort of effect is uh, I've seen this on building sort of digital platforms on, on, on cloud for, for government. I, I thought it was the most innovative teams who would be most engaged with doing, you know, my, my cloud platform. Um, and we had a, I had a really good platform uh, uh, platform owner who who had a lot of experience. He said, no, 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 it's going to be the legacy people. They they won't understand it, but when they get it, they'll see the benefit and they'll use it. And he said, all the hotshot modern people are like, no, 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 I want to learn it myself. I don't want to use a platform. And he was exactly correct. That's what happens. You know, you you have to get some of the people who are you know really struggling and and really cloud is just so far away and and doing it with you know elasticity and all this kind of stuff is just so far away. They start using the data mesh and like, I get it. I want to use it. I, I want my customers to get it this way, etc. Um, and, and they get the big wins and eventually drags around the, well, I've got my modern cloud thing anyway and I didn't want to play data mesh, but actually well, you know, all the S400 mainframe guys at the bank are doing it and now I need to get with it as well. You know, I'm doing Kafka, I'm doing all the modern stuff, but you know, I need also to do a, you know, a data product strategy and, and have my data as part of the overall assets of the organization. It leads into the incentive-based mechanism here, right? Ultimately, what are the teams being incentivized with? And what you see with the legacy teams is that exposure to modern tech, having a high level of automation in the tech stack, actually getting to upgrade their skills is a huge positive incentive to apply here, right? Because they are looking at this as great. We get something out of it besides our day-to-day. It also makes their day-to-day jobs a lot easier, right? So eventually, every organization who is looking to adopt something like the right we'll have to figure out what is the incentive framework that they are offering right and it's not really um, about numbers necessarily right it's a lot psychological it's about the softer benefits right so if there's an engineer working on a mainframe and now suddenly they're exposed to a lot of modern technology it helps them uplift their skills right so there's incentive there if there's semi-modern tech or vendor platforms and they are having all this automation available it actually makes their day-to-day jobs easier and then there is obviously Uh, Teams who stand behind the patterns like the mesh and stuff, they actually see customer success, right? Because you start seeing a lot of adoption of the data sets. The cycle times are a lot smaller. And as a consequence, actually, you get a lot of positive feedback, right? So where we were originally, we were seeing lead times from 9 to 18 months on small changes. And that then drops to days and weeks. That gives a lot more positive vibe from the customers. You start seeing a lot more better relationship. And all of these things add up, right? So the incentive 
incentive based aspect of it is key um, and it's not cut and dry so every organization will have to find their combination of these incentives but i think predominantly aligning to the teams and what the gaps are is a good starting point I'm sitting here and thinking this has been listened to and I, I can hear our customer go, well, I'm a hotshot, so there's nothing here for me. <laughs> I'm yeah, not on a mainframe. Yeah. So I have, to, I have to cover the full part of the, the pictures, yeah. right? What the hotshots find is like, you know, hey, I've got my Kafka running and I've got my cloud. It's all good and brilliant. It's looking great. And then they hit like all the compatibility and, and security and client sign-offs and client approvals and all the reg and everything. And it just becomes no fun anymore. Like they've got their toy running and actually get their customized solution out the door is just just so hard. So, you know, what, what these technologies want is autonomy, mastery, and purpose. And a data mesh that's done as self-service automation gives them autonomy. And they kind of go, they're reluctant to go, okay, I'll try and use your stuff. and go, wow, this is super easy. I just define a product in metadata and it generates everything I need. And I have an approved path to live and, and I can self-service do things. And then they sort of realize it's like, if I just do it the mesh way, I get so much certifications, assurance, signs off, I can get this stuff done, legal and compliance is done. I can get the client permission to get it into the cloud. And they still get their autonomy. They still get to focus on their business solutions and extend, you know, extend functionality and add use cases off it. And then they give up and go, yeah, I build it myself and get it in production, which is too hard. But the paperwork, the legal, the compliance was just too hard. And I use the data mesh, which is trying to make, uh, you know, uh, a smooth set of rails to, to get it out at the door. That that's that's uh, saves them a huge amount of time. And what the organization wants is all these parties to come together to make these data assets, so they can start to get insights. Um, and use cases across all these different domains. But but one person is not incentivized to, to, to do all the work so that collectively, whenever he's done the work, there's some benefit to themselves. That just doesn't work. So, you know, big organizations are used to the, you know, the SOAS craze, the microservice craze, the DevOps craze, the this craze, or that craze, where each team sort of say, well, I will do all this work and then, you know, it's extra work. And then somehow, whenever he does all the work, the organization gets the payout. Right, and and therein lies a million failed initiatives, and so so with the data mesh, you have to make sure that each of these teams are getting something out of it, and when enough of them are doing it, then we get the holistic cross-domain, big picture, big insights. The execs get what they really wanted, which was to not see themselves as many many data silos and handoffs, but to see themselves as a combined set of data assets where they can bring the teams to the data safely and start innovate and get you know all the other you know get lots of things done. Traditionally, with with data, it has weight, it has cost, you know, and you know, getting the data in the environments is expensive. Businesses just go after the low hanging, obvious fruit. If you're talking about innovation with analytical data, you, you should see some failures, right? You should see some innovations where they try stuff and then they go, "Oh, well, that didn't work out because the master data management stuff isn't aligned." We'll come back next year. Now, with a data mesh, it should be so easy. You've got the data. You've got it's quick to get people on board, quick to spin up everything they need, quick to try it out. And if they fail, well, that's fine. They just go, "This doesn't work out. Let's let's do something else." And and you know, for an organization to get to the point where it's not just trying struggling to do the obvious things and maybe getting it done twice the price and twice the the, the time than they hoped, more like you know, lots of obvious things are getting done, but also so innovations getting done and something's failing. That that's really where you want to get to. So there, there's a lot that we could unpack in there. I, I think it's too, too many things that to, to go through in, in all the different uh, threads. But um, one thing that I would uh, ask about is, uh, so Sonny, you had talked about that with the, um, if, you, if you had your druthers, if you could uh, choose, that it would be that you could do this as a skunk works. Most people can't get enough funding to, to actually get that momentum. And the people that I... 
I know have tried to do it unless they're doing it over a three-year time frame or something like that, which is fine. There are a lot of people that are going at a very, very slow pace um, because it's the way that they can actually do it in such a way that they can get it done. But um, how have you looked at finding the initial use cases, right? And what what is the genesis of the data product? Is it that you find a use case and that generates a data product? Or um, I assume that's kind of what I'm reading from underneath the lines rather than a domain just sharing their data. And I think the big question is, who is the the initial user? Because I'm going to guess that what you're going to tell me is that every time to get the initial incentivization, you find a domain that has a use case for their own data instead of you find domains that are willing to just be like, yes, we're going to share our data. It might be a little different in financial services because there can be actual monetary transfer, right? Which doesn't happen in in kind of quote unquote normal companies. But that that I think is a big question because a lot of people are seeing you'll only have domains create data products for themselves. So a lot wrapped in there, but kind of, I think it's all a lot to unpack on that one. And many threads. No, exactly. We're, we're going to yeah. be here all day. It's cool. Yeah, yeah, no. But but I think you hit on a very important point there, actually. And this is one that doesn't necessarily always get uh, brought into the light is the fact that w- how do you deal with data? Right. So our simplistic view of data is that if you put data in a place and it is not being used, it is a liability. Right. So our starting point with all of this is that find a use case that can use some of the data that you're trying to put into whatever the data ecosystem is in this scenario, the mesh. Right. And that use case then drives the quality of the data and effectively then drives the genesis of the data product. Right. Um, And then obviously the organization evolves and there's more things that come into play. The data product evolves as well. So, So the starting point is about use cases. Right. It's about finding a use case that you can pin this on. Go on, Simon. Yeah, so I just want to jump in on there, right? So, so, but the persons who are listening in large organizations that says, he just spoke heresy. I'm trying to build a governed data product and it'd be reusable. And this person just came in and go, you know, I'm going to throw some in a use case and see what happens. And it's like, no, you can't do that. You know, we can, this, this is going to go wrong and it's not the right product. It's not the golden source and it's not going to be all this and the other. So, so, you know, I come from the sort of you know more more lean and uh, uh, you know continuous uh, improvement kind of world, and so what we sort of say is, yeah, we we favor use, de- design for use, evolve reuse. So so imagine the idea you have an alpha product, a team comes in and says, I'm going to land data, and I'm going to be the consumer of my data. We set them up as two, you know, a producer domain that's source line producer and a, and a consumer. We force them to have that sort of thing, and we say, well, you know, from the government's perspective, this is completely alpha. You are sh- you are talking to yourself, right? And and there's no problem with you breaking yourself. You don't need to be excessively governed because, you know, there's not much liability, right, between the whole thing. Get that used. Get the court data quality up. Now you can say, well, what attributes do I want to start sharing? Now that's kind of like another domain's coming in, consumer domain, and they want access to the data. Now it's going to be like a beta product. So it's like this is not for general consumption. It's not ready to be sent out via some public share into the into the outside world, right? And and so uh, you know, with with a traditional data warehouse, it's fragile and you know needs to be you know wrapped in cotton wool in case it broke. You couldn't have you know 
lots of different versions of things like you have with microservices. But you know, with a with a data mesh with elastic cloud-based storage, separation storage, compute, and some fundamentals, we can have the idea of like, yeah, you know, you can have different views of the data and you can have different versions of the data. You don't want to maintain too many different versions of the data, but but you know, you you can have, you know, you can have version one and version two, and you can deprecate version one when you've got everything in version two. And so this idea of like alpha, beta, final GA product, that's really important. So it's not waterfall. I have designed the perfect products, build it. It's get something and get it used, get it beta tested. So we make it specifically safe to always add to your product, right? So additive changes are yeah. safe. But if you want to delete something, we need your version of product and figure out your migration plan to migrate people if you're a version of product. So so back to Sunny a little bit about that. So the idea of use is heresy in a data mesh and governance because you need to be governing it. We're saying incremental governance. Absolutely. And, and an extrapolation of that point actually is that that you were talking about, uh, Scott, uh, mentioned about, you know, the, the teams are going at different paces and trying to evolve with the mesh as such, right? I think it leads into an uh, important point where mesh is not all or nothing. Right, you it, it it's not it's not a mesh uh, till you've got all the things ingrained into your infrastructure. Well, it's not. You, you have to build this out incrementally because you're not buying off-the-shelf mesh because it has to adapt to your organization. Right, it has to adapt to your risk profile, your legal requirements, your cloud strategy, and a whole load of other things. Right, so the mesh is about incrementally building out the data ecosystem that you need, and then all the evolutionary aspects around the org design and the ways of working that incrementally gets ingrained into it. So when you start looking at this, you actually look, uh, the simplest way to build out a data product is to align it to a use case. And ideally, if it is your own use case, that's probably the best way because you control the end-to-end cycle, right? And then as Simon mentioned, there's a data product life cycle, right? So alpha, beta, and full available, right? Now, all of these things eventually lead to one thing and one thing alone. That is that if you do not manage the life cycle of the data product, effectively, you're just building marts for yourself, right? So we have to bring it back that have you got all the relevant governance in place? And again, this can evolve, right? So where we've seen it is you start by creating a siloed data set for yourself aligned to your use case, right? That's your starting point and you incrementally improve. Right. So I don't think it's about the pace at all. And it's it's primarily people appreciating mesh is not all or nothing. Right. Mesh is about evolving. Yeah. And and, and you know so um, you know, you'd get these use cases in, get data use, get high quality, and then you start seeing, you know, multiple consumers across producers and then, you know, and then multiple producers to consumers building derived data products that need to govern themselves. Um, but, you know, architecturally, they kind of go, oh, I want everything, right? I want the end thing of a mesh. Everything talks everything and it's all just magic. And it's like, no, it, it's, it's a sequence of evolutionary steps that build confidence to get to the point where you have the end producers to end consumers, right? We probably start one-to-one, you know, maybe do machine learning case because that's something really significant. Then you do a key initiative for another sort of domain that's maybe uh, needs to get new APIs out of the, out of the bank on your reporting. So you're doing these things that sort of more point-to-point using mesh technology before you get to those sort of use cases that are using two established consumers, right? Or, or you know, several established consumers being used to make a derived data product. And, and yeah, that... The benefit, you know, if you the benefit of working with people like us who have been through this a couple of laps, right, is is that kind of like okay, how are we going to approach this problem? You know, of all the things we can do, what are the things that build capability, build technical capability, build confidence, build governance that's not boiling the ocean that we can kind of like get to the point, but don't shoot for the end state of a mesh because it's it's really really hard, right? You need to, and quite frankly, it's not defined fully. 
right? I mean, I don't think the end state of the mesh is fully defined just yet, right? It's evolving. I think there's a lot more to come into play, uh, which which is why we keep an eye out for that ourselves, right? Our first and the implementation is different from the second one in terms of stuff that we've added, right? Um, and I think one of the things that people look at in terms of the mesh is that because of the federated ownership of the aspects in the mesh, right? Where does governance go? Is it all? governance or is there no governance right and i think what we've learned is that it again it has to evolve right you start with your bare minimum governance right uh, which basically gets all your legalities your regionalization constraints out of the way your security constraints out of the way and then you start evolving that right and all of these things will then get us to a point where and you'll see more come out of it because uh, fully federated is utopia but not every organization gets there right uh, we haven't seen it either right so we see some sort of a hybrid between fully federated and there are teams who will get their raw data sets dump it in the mesh and do all the uh, refinement and optimizations in the mesh there are other teams who have canonical outside the mesh and that converges right so you see a hybrid of patterns come out uh, within the mesh yeah so lot 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 to react to there but i think um what a lot of what you're talking about, I, I have one question that I think is a a very quick answer, but could be also a very deep one of w- when you're first starting out, what is what are you trying to prove out? What is your minimum viable X? Are you trying to prove out when people look to is a data set valuable? That's the old way of thinking. That's not. But but Simon, a lot of what you were saying is heresy in data. You talk, you know, uh, both of you talked about like, no, you can't do this uh, in the microservices world, but like it's heresy in data to have evolution because the cost of change has been so insanely high. We haven't had patterns to do that. Exactly. And, and, and so just to jump in there, everybody's adding another layer of complexity to try and solve this thing and another layer of check complexity, right? And I want to get to, there has been a breakthrough, people. Right. If you're a financial services organization and a bank, right, and producing, you know, what you think is a large amount of data in the big data world, it's not it's a trifling amount of data, right? And you can get access to cloud technologies, a separate storage and compute that you can throw SQL at, you can pay as you go, you can use it as and it's effectively infinite. You you know, effectively for your purposes, you know, you're landing really high value financial data or something value for your organization, right? And, you know, all the constraints are gone. It's not I have to capacity plan this warehouse to receive this load and then I have to go back to the drawing board or whatever. And so when you come back to say, it's like, you know, you can just put the data in and throw a computer at it and achieve outcomes, then a lot of things follow from that. And so our, our heresy is not because we're just idiots and didn't figure out why, you know, how you should do it properly. The heresy is because something fundamental has changed, right? Separation, storage, compute, and, and, and cloud data warehouses. That means the establishment needs to sort of step back and say, why? Why did you think it that way? Why, why, why? You ask the five whys, and you come back to you, because building, standing up, storage and compute together, and hitting with load does not support unbounded innovation. And when you go, but you're not going to do that. You know, you have separation, storage, compute, so you can innovate. And it's like, well, then you don't need all this upfront planning and lock it all down before you start. So yeah, sorry to jump in there and Scott, but there's something fundamentals changed and all these people who understand how data's worked for 25 years, when they get to the bottom of that, then you can start again and you get a different outcome when you have the new technology. It's also cost of failure, right? So in the past, cost of failure was too large, 
right? You just could not afford to fail because, well, you did fail. It's just that by the time you got it, uh, got to that, you just had to accept that, no, it is what it is and we'll crack on with it. Whereas here, what you've got is in the past, you'd be standing up a new warehouse, you'll get an ATL tool, you'll get all the stuff aligned to it, hire new skills to do stuff, right? Whereas what we are trying to achieve with the mesh actually, and especially because of the availability of cloud technologies is that the innovation and cycle is a lot shorter, which implies you can actually actually fail in a small scale, uh, which implies that you can actually change course, right? Um, and we, we see this a lot because ultimately team, everybody, every, every person running a program, right? Wants full line of sight, right? Defined milestones and even wants to micromanage innovation, right? Whereas what the mesh offers is that you have an early cycle of your program where you're actually doing a lot of discovery activity and that's where the mesh helps build confidence. And it's the age old thing, right? That is agile not predictable? Well, agile is predictable, just not the same way as it used to be uh, with waterfall, which is basically you don't have defined milestones and you can actually change course. So you don't spend a lot of time upfront planning. The reason why we went down the path of the mesh originally was because we could get agility to everything except the data architecture, right? And that was the primary driver for us. And what we realized with the mesh architecture, you can do that. So, I mean, we talked a lot about, um, I mean, we, we could go into like, what are you actually trying to prove out? But I think you, you are trying to prove out that you can somewhat produce data products, but also that the, the first couple of data products have the value and, and that you're actually able to do that. And instead of, hey, we've fully built out our mesh. But I, I think let's start to talk a little bit about maybe, you know, reflect back on some missteps that you made so that others don't go down these same paths. Like what were some things where you thought this is going to work out? And and very logically, you thought could have thought that this is the way we've tried to approach this. But like, uh, you know, I've talked to people about driving buy-in and it's like haranguing people doesn't work. Right. So what, if we're going to them with additional resources or, adi you know, whatever that means, whether that's uh, funding or that's, you know, we're going to make it so that it's actually easy to do this or whatever. But like, what are those things that you think has been uh, that you've seen that that didn't go so well that you would tell people this wasn't just a one off? It didn't go go uh, badly because of the uh, circumstances, it, it's just not a, a great way to <laughs> to approach it. Yeah, no. So, so uh, two learnings for me personally with the mesh, actually, uh, which I think most teams will see, uh, is one is that try, don't short circuit your cloud strategy and build a mesh on prem. Right. So absolutely do not try doing that. The reason is we did this with Hadoop on prem originally, and it's it's just a lot of work for very little value. Um, you, you do get the business outcomes, right? Because you can make Hadoop work in some way, but not if you want to build it enterprise wide. Right. It does not scale. So things like Hadoop on prem was an example. There'll be similar examples, but on prem just does not scale right to build out a mesh and the other thing i will say that get the governance teams involved early on 
right? And the reason is not to have a full-blown governance framework ingrained into mesh on day one, but it is to avoid the pitfalls, right? And that is around data regionalization. Can this data sit in this location or not? Is this data being allowed? Are these specific data attributes allowed on the cloud or not? So you get those discussions going quite early on and your use case will drive it, right? So if you, for example, if you've got a use case with PII, it, it will actually help you prove out a lot of the mesh upfront, right? And if that's a use case you find, amazing. If you don't have one of those, then that needs to be thought about. And which is why I think a lot of this mesh is about collaboration ultimately, right? And collaborating just between the teams who are building the mesh and the use case is probably not enough, right? So I think a lot of collaboration needs to keep going. But this is not then saying that it is a committee-based view of the world. Right. So this is about getting the collaboration, getting feedback in, but also acclimatizing people that this is iterative. Right. And as long as people can get their heads around that, I think you'll be fine. So I think very early collaboration with a wider community is important within any organization. Right. Uh, but also I wouldn't bother with on-prem. Sam, do you want to add to that? Yeah, um, two jumped into mind and now they're, 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 they're evading me. Um, one of them was about... Uh, yeah, so sort of seeing if you if you read the data mesh paper, data mesh book, and read them multiple times because as you go on your journey, you, what you take away from it, what you learn from it, kind of kind of changes a little bit. Um, you know, one of the things it's trying to do is is you know, one of the early versions of the blog. The diagram's gone. I don't know where the diagram's gone. I need to go back to the wayback machine to find find Shermac's old diagram. It's a diagram of like a hyper specialized team in the middle, just these little people who are just miserable. Right, they're really unhappy, and you got the source people are kind of happy because they've thrown it over the wall and they got away with it. <laughs> it happens a lot of banks. You know, the hyper specialized team, the ETL, the their engineers are miserable because the their customers are miserable and they don't have access to the data, and and. Um, you know that's what the Damesh is trying to get rid of. We're trying to have a sort of mixed discipline team on the source side who can is empowered to get the data into the mesh and has all the skills. And we're trying to get mixed discipline teams on the consumption type, side that's empowered and has all the access to, to build the use cases. But the moment you get into a large organization, they go, right, I'm doing the data mesh and upstream I'm going to put a centralized ETL team or a centralized Kafka team. <laughs> And, a, and a, you know, I'm going to create some handoffs between the core platforms and the data mesh, whereas the idea of the data mesh is to remove the handoffs. So that that's like a major thing. Ditto downstream. Uh, you know, you, you, you know, just because you've got data products and you've been able to optimize the use case doesn't mean you have, you know, the necessary tools to easily expose that to your 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 customers. And you get the same problem. Somebody goes, well, I'll solve this with the magic platform that's going to that's going to get data out the door and it's like rather than using what's there practically to build use case and build confidence to say no no we're going to build them the, the the magic data distribution platform downstream the mesh so yeah the data mesh sandwiched between an etl team and and some sort of downstream team that's just the problem we're trying to replace so that's that's a big organizational failing or a failing you come to the implementation you you're doing the data mesh thing and you, you didn't realize that the land grab is happening upstream or downstream that's creating these handoffs um yeah i think that that's us for one or two um that that's that's a big big sort of learning uh, about it what about working with specific team right like when you when you think about were there any you know not trying to throw any specific teams under the bus so remove all uh specific details or whatever but what we've what i've heard constantly is people are when they're trying to drive that incentivization and that buy in that there are teams, and, and I think it's typically that they're trying to extract the, the data from that team 
for use by other teams instead of for themselves. And so um, people are like, but that's where our value unlock is. And and so, you know, I don't know if they're literally their organization isn't set up because the value unlock is only in the cross domain things or, or what, but like, where are some, uh, what, what are some good patterns and some anti-patterns around working with different domains and like the different types of somebody who's really bought in or somebody who's really bought into your face and not so bought in behind <laughs> your back. We have this all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I really want to point that like Sonny's previous answer about incentivizing. So I'm just jumping. It's just so key. Like, so it's not just data mesh. I've, I've seen enterprise service bus. I've seen big, you know, massive management projects, exactly the same thing. C-suite goes, when I get to the end, I get all this additional value. Can we just go straight there? Can everybody just donate to this brilliant outcome at the end? And they've missed the intermediate steps that people really need to get something out of it if they're going to like work extra hours to do everything they're committed to do and do this strategic initiative. And 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 so don't don't shoot for the magic C-suite, you know, uh, high, uh, sunny highlands of perfection and expect people to do it because it's never worked on any initiative I've ever seen in the past, no matter what it was, building some strategic new client subledger and investment bank or stream computing, margin call, messaging thing at investment bank, all those platforms, you really had to get the incentive out of each team before the whole thing would come together. But sorry, I, I sort of jumped in over the top of you, Sonny. No, no, it's fine. I mean, that, that's that's exactly where I was going as well, right? So incentives, right? Now, what we see is typically with the teams, right, is that uh, macro use cases versus micro use cases, right? So when I talk about these, is it's like um, how, how do you, how do you look at cross-domain data versus data just within a single domain? I think your starting point typically depends on what your organizational vision is, right? So we speak to a lot of CIOs about this as well. Um, and one of our recent conversations, the CIOs were like, "Well, I don't really want to worry about the autonomy of each of those teams just yet, and unlocking the micro use cases within the domain. My primary driver is actually the macro use cases, cross-domain reporting." AUM, AUC, whatever reporting, right? Uh, and that's basically the organization-wide MI. Um, so that's fine too, right? Because it doesn't matter which one goes first. The question really to answer is that if you've got an organizational vision towards your overall digital strategy and the outcomes you're trying to achieve, you have to fit within that, right? Because that's what drives your uh, sponsorship model and effectively the success. Right. Because if you haven't got buy in, you just will not get it. The other thing also is that you have to get the uh, we, we call this out very typically as the we get the technology folks and the business folks involved. Right. Uh, and I don't think you can do it just within technology or have this sort of outsourced initiative within the business. Right. All teams have to come to the party. So ways of working plays a key role in this. And I think getting collaboration across the departments, across the organization is key. Every time we haven't seen that happen that is the one which is delayed so we've had early adopters high levels of enthusiasm up front right and the technology team driving the initiative and then the business goes well, i don't quite need this anymore right it's taken too long uh, so alternatively uh, you have teams who are slow to start with but they've been rallying the troops right it business support whatnot right and they've actually made it Right, they've gotten all the way and they've unlocked a lot of business uh, value out of it. Um, one of the CIOs I worked with a while back, right, uh, was uh, keen on using a terminology and it was unlocking business value quickly. 
right and i think the quickly aspect of this right the speed of it is important because believing and seeing right there's a there's a chasm of anxiety in the middle right where you believe it you've read the theory right everybody's convinced you it is true but until they see it they actually don't right so i think it's about the cycle time as long as you can innovate fast and start showing incremental value i think it works and that's the one you work with the teams on and 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 there that's the but the door opens and the vampires come in because you know it is a strategic initiative there is a lot of money a lot, lot riding on it and the good ideas come and go but it'd be so much better if i just add these additional things you know to you know as we're building it can i just add these additional things so that when, when i get my data mesh it's even more impressive than it would be if i just got it working um and 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 that's really a really hard instinct to sort of try and pair back it's like you need to aggressively go after time to value that's that's what counts. That's what keeps people believing. The well, if you put a bit more work in and wait a bit longer, I get perfect and wouldn't be better. That is just uh, you know, pushes out the timeline, pushes back the feedback loop, and leads to you know delays, lack of confidence, you know, etc. So, so yeah, if, if it's about innovation with analytical data, which it should be, be really aggressive about seeing things work with an MVP. Go lean, and you know, and keep 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 it lean, right? Then to Sonny's sort of uh, point, he said, well, you know, you see some winners, you see some losers, you know, you see some tortoise, you see some hare. But it gets to a point where you kind of get to a point of a critical mass of some teams, you know, a significant amount of teams that are doing significantly diverse domains have succeeded. And then that removes the sort of, uh, you know, the kind of like the existential threat to the initiative of building a data mesh. Once you get, so you have your, your, uh, your early adopters are really keen about it. And you've got your chasm to your fast followers that are going at reduction curve. And that's really hard. Doing the early keen ones, the th- first three, hey, easy. Getting the next six kind of fast followers running while you're building a data mesh, while you're putting self-service, while you're putting governments in, you know, while you're landing people in the data mesh. That is that's hardcore. Get to the end of that and you actually have a, you know your self-service capabilities, you know all the bits and pieces. Then you want to get into your your early majority, kind of like then you have a data mesh, right? And you can start. People can be just set up, and you know they can try it. And some are winning, some are losing. It doesn't matter, but it's been proven. And the t- people show focus, get an outcome. The people who are not getting an, an outcome are not because the tooling's not there. It's because they just you know kind of screwing around a little bit, you know. And 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 then you hope you get hope maybe you get the late majority, and then your laggards. You know, we we stay at the fun side of the curve, <laughs> but uh, you know we we'll stick around for the <laughs> stick around for the laggards. Um, so yeah, and, and so it, it, it's tough, um, and it, it takes perseverance, but, but as you know, seeing is believing. And when you get those, like the first six through the door and people then can't sort of ignore it, um, then it becomes transformative. Yeah. And I think, um, there was one question that we had written down before about, um, how do you balance return on investment IRR, which is kind of your internal rate of return, which says, you know, rate of uh, uh, return on investment doesn't say the time value, right? So you're talking about, and one thing that you were both talking about a lot throughout this conversation is iteration. And you were kind of discussing it right there about at the uh, mesh level, but I also think it's very important to talk about it at the data product level, right? You talked about that a little bit earlier, but that it's okay to get something out and get into people's hands if you have the communication and the understanding that, hey, this is kind of crappy quality, right? Like <laughs> this isn't well. This isn't well, really- no, like we we have we do, no crappy quality, right? The crappy quality is you publish it and they'll come, kind of thing. We, we're very keen that the data has a use case and the use case proves the quality. What we don't want is people putting. We want high quality 
thin, thin slices that build confidence. Well, we don't want width. The, the, if you build it with calm, I think it's all being used, but I'm not really sure because I just add an extra hundred columns onto what is a transaction. Yeah. So, so we, we, we are, we as the data mesh platform team, we don't really, we don't really find what it is or what care about it. We care about its auditability, um, its safety. Um, but we are really keen that this stuff is no, is known good and gets used, right? So, so yeah, zero, zero crap in. But the idea that we know exactly what the product will be in a year's time, no, we don't know that, right? We're getting that data in that is part of a domain that's understood as high quality. Focus on a small slice, slowly expand the slice, you know, make it safe to add attributes to a product, build confidence over time, you know, ex- only expand the interface as you have, you know, real users who are really going to get benefit of it. Does that, sorry, so it was, I sort of jumped in a little bit about this. That that was my point, though, of of when I'm talking about on a micro level, right? Instead of exactly, there there is an emerging pattern of of people creating a purposeful data swamp, so then people can see what data is on value, or is of of uh, is available, and then they start to have uh, use cases emerge from that much better. Um, and that's that's when people aren't even sure what any domain might have, and it tends to lead to cross-domain data products, which can cause all sorts of problems if that's your, your first one. But it is working for some people. But my point is that the the quality of the product, even the quality of the data, the faster you get it into the people's hands so they can start to figure out the use case and then work with the producer and consumer, even if they're the same one, the faster you can iterate towards what actually matters here, right? It, it's it's like that you can get to incremental value up front as you're actually building out the product itself, right? That 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 people can do the exploratory work. That's the pattern that I'm seeing emerge more and more of getting. But there has to be extremely strong communication as to don't put this into production, don't use this yet, but get some some directionality around it. Yeah, so, so I think th- this this is about the lens you're looking at, right? I don't think I think we are talking the same thing here, right? Is ultimately it's about getting the data in the mesh, right, uh, and making it available. Now, exploration of data itself could be a use case, right? And that's fine, right? Because you're doing data discovery, you're trying to understand what is in there, assess the quality, drive some analytics or insights off of it, right? But the point really is that what you shouldn't do. And this is our learning, uh, learning it the hard way actually is just put data in there and not have a user at all, right? Because it degrades as it stays in there. So even if it's about very loose use cases, it's fine, right? What you do not want is no use case. And the challenge you see is that most organizations, it's like, well, I've got this replication tool who can take my current operational database and put it all in the mesh. Right. And let's figure it out another day. No, 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 no. We don't go about that way. Right. So if you're telling us that you're going to put all this data in the mesh and you're going to actually validate it, explore it and drive insights off of it, that's cool. Right. But there's got to be a user at the end of it because there's only two ways to do data quality. Right. Either use it or assess it through a data quality mechanism, right? One of the two has to be there, both is great, right? Whereas having none of those is a problem. And this is why our general thought process on this is that if you get the data in there, do something with it, right? Don't just put it in there for the sake of it. yeah, and, and so yeah, so so I was talking about data quality, and 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 Scott rightly said, but hang on a minute, there are some contexts where people are doing this, you know, purposeful swamp and evolving it. So so I just want to sort of sort of do a, a bit of a plug here, right? That 
the most important paper I found or blog or post about the data mesh since like Zermak's original paper, there's a, there's a, there's a, um, towards a data science, uh, blog and there's one entitled data mesh topographies and domain granularity by a person whose name I'm about to absolutely slaughter. Pete Hein Strangholt. Yeah. Yeah. Now that, that to me was the biggest Rosetta Stone for understanding why am I talking across purposes to other people doing data mesh, right? And in there, he talks about, well, there's sort of different kind of domain topographies which might fit different organizations. And I'm very much working in, you know, in certain sort of types of, you know, uh, bank to bank or, you know, the financial services, financial services kind of organizations where the topography that we work in, like it really fits, it slams at home. Data quality is the thing. And we, we, we know what it is because we kind of understand, uh, you know, the, the, the historic problems in that space and, and, and what's going on. But at the same time, you read that paper, there's other topographies, you know, in, in, in Shermak's book, she, she uses like, you know, a, a blog. It's like, oh, it's this music streaming domain, right? And, you know, the doing clicks. It's like, that's just completely alien to where I am, right? I, that's not where I am at, right? And, and, you know, I can look at some of those main topographies and go, well, if I was doing like fulfillment, if I was, if I was, Amazon, right, doing just purely what Amazon books. You can understand, yeah, this topography where these domains, in this, you know, it's, let's say it's logistics and warehousing and fulfillment, they all kind of know each other and they're quite line source domains. So maybe in some of these sort of topographies or maybe certain size business, that idea of just throw it in there and, and, you know, it's all one business, it's all valuable data to the CEO, he just can't get information, just throw it all in a purposeful swamp and kind of figure it out and do some machine learning. That might work. And, and But I, I don't have an experience of those domains. I, I have Sonny and I have experience of, you know, multinational, multi-jurisdictional, multiple business lines, you know, you know, you know, trillions assets under management kind of worlds. And in our space, it's like that, that's it. So, so I'm very much aware when somebody's talking cross-purpose to me, it's because I don't, you know, I only know what I know and I'm still learning, right? And other people are, you know, I'd be fascinated to work in some of those other contexts, right? To see a data mesh working at a small to medium sized enterprise or, or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then I, I learn more about what I don't know. Right. Yeah. I'd call those kind of the big honking domains, uh, what you're talking <laughs> about where there, there are like 30 or 40 subdomains, you know, JP Morgan chase, um, did a meetup, uh, last year with, uh, the data mesh learning community meetup. And they said, um, that they had 600 domains, Right. And so those are all organized into kind of higher level domains. Um, Finch, when they were on um, Bjorn Smedman, talked about um, they're in five domains because they've summed them up into very large domains. And each domain has 700, you know, 500 plus people in it. Right. So, okay, you've got 500 plus people in each domain. So you can have that embedded. Um, analytics team in each domain, the embedded data science, but everything is very different. So if you are talking about the the two pizza team domain, right? Like where people are like, oh, I, this is my microservice team. Is that microservice team a domain? Well, maybe it's a subdomain of a subdomain of a subdomain, but that team doesn't have, like you want them to be somewhat capable and understanding of what the data that they're needing to share is, but you don't need them to be ultra capable versus you have those capabilities within the higher level domain, which is why startups doing data mesh, when you've got domains of, of like five or six people, it's too much work to decentralize, right? The centralization isn't your, your enemy. It's not your bottleneck in almost all cases. 
I was going to say organizational maturity is also a key factor here, right? So what you will start seeing with organizations is that if if they have a well embedded data strategy, right, then mesh is a matter of pivoting into that without actually having to revamp the whole organization, right? Whereas there are certain organizations where the data strategy is basically dog's dinner, right? And in those situations, you have to rethink from the beginning. Um, now, in the domains that you're talking about, whether it's five hundred or whether it is five, ultra, ultimately, right? What's your op model, right? Who are the key players in that who owns the data what are the contracts with the consumers all of those key aspects have to be established it doesn't matter the number of domains is not key the number of data products is not key what's key is that have you got clear rules of the road and contracts between the producers and the consumers and the data quality rules embedded into that right if you can address that it doesn't matter how many have you got in there and and the moment you say it's when it's because yeah I've got this big domain I got five thousand people I say like, I know what you're going to do I know you have a product council product committee and a data a data modeler and a data governance people the people doing the work are not doing it they're talking to a committee and the scrum of scrums and it's like you're going to get nowhere right just like every time they ever did this before you're going to get nowhere you know I've been working in financial for twenty five years those big committee meetings to big a big outcome and a waterfall always you know fail right. And and so 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 it's if you go back to the original blog, go get the time machine, go get the original diagram. It's the person who's got the data, the person who's got the need, and a bunch of people in between who are kind of miserable. And if those people are happy, then they're just you know that's a problem. They're just they've got no responsibility. They're in a committee. They're getting paid for doing. It. They don't they don't get any pain. They just do the merry go round of talking about it. If they're actually doing the work, they're miserable because there's handoffs. And so, yeah, you can't have a 5,000-person domain or, or, or modeled your 600 domains without just, quite frankly, you make it up, right? You know, we, it only ever works if it's a misdiscipline agile team of, you know, a couple of people building the product incrementally. So, I, you know, I, I sit on meetings at various organizations where I, I can have a meeting with, you know, 15, 20 managers, and I keep on saying, can I have an engineer? Can I have an engineer? Can I have an engineer? Eventually, I have an engineer, and there's... Me and two of the three of the engineers, we just use the stuff and we start building data products. And, you know, it doesn't scale up. There's no such thing as I'll get 30 engineers trained up in building data products, you know, because, you know, if, if they're doing all that planning to get all those resources, to get the people in the door to do the innovation, well, you've already had to wait one annual cycle to start the innovation. It just, because 30 people don't turn up instantaneously. They turn up when you've got the budget next year and you hire them. It's, it's a year out to get 30 people, right? But start now. The people who have access to the data and use the tools. It starts with two or three engineers, right? So despite the fact they think they're going to scale it up, it's always two pieces of teams. And that's been every bank and every initiative and every insurance thing I've ever done. I only ever, ever got anything done with a two-piece of team. Whether it was supposed to be 30 people, it would turn up too late and didn't deliver. Yeah, I mean, it's about ownership model as well, right? So we haven't touched on this term. It's ownership versus proxy ownership, right? And I think the problem we are trying to get rid of, right, or solve is the proxy ownership issue where the warehouse teams in the middle had some sort of proxy ownership of the data, right? They were sort of semi-SMEs on the producer side and semi-SMEs on the consumer side, but actually didn't quite understand either side, right? And what we want to do is get the contracts directly between the producers and the consumer. And there's a lot of framework activity that needs to go around it right so there's got to be rules of the road there's got to be relevant forums where teams can collaborate so that is where the ways of working and what you come to is the engineering is the easy part if, if you get everything out of the way the engineering is the easy part okay. and, and 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 you know jmac's paper is kind of like people can really skim over and miss what what what's basically said you know she talks about platforms uh thinking she talks about um you know elastic uh data infrastructure and stuff like that 
But but what it's always leading to, you know, and you know, microservices kind of terminology and, and et cetera, et cetera, all it's leading to is, yeah, you know, you can do enough standardization, enough automation, uh, if you're doing it right, to make the technology not the bounding bounding problem. Right? We're used to, I need to commission a warehouse, I need to get the data copied, I need to do this, I need to do that. You know, I'm planning to build something year out. Nobody ever sees the, de- the data until we've copied the data into UAT and that's a year out. Um, you know, with with the data mesh, you know, you can get it to the point where you have the data products and you're bringing the teams to the data products and the technology is not the, the problem. It's it's the actual business expertise to sign off the product. It's the legal and compliance and governance. And if your data mesh is not good, it's for the technology is just kind of like, you know, put the details of the team in, press the go button, and the team gets everything they need to start putting data in a mesh in one sprint. They're trained, and then they come back in two months' time and they've got seven or eight, nine products that they're, they're trying to rip, put into UAT. If that if you haven't got that far, you're not doing it right. Yeah, the technology should not be the bounding problem. It's it's, it's expertise, business sign-off, and and legal, legal stuff. So so we often put stuff in, in, in switched off because we're waiting for legal, right? And and um, so I, I want to be cognizant of time because we've <laughs> hit an hour and I want to be cognizant of your time. I do have one uh, more question if, if we do have time for one more. Do we do you have it? OK, so um, one thing that has come up a, a lot um, outside of the data modeling thing, I don't want to get into data modeling because that's that's the, <laughs> the thing that that uh, could be an hour and a half long one. But the challenges of combined slash derived data products. Are they actual products? Who owns them? How can you sync across so many damn sources when there are like, okay, this uh, the ML team needs to uh, consume these like from six different source products and they don't want to own that one product. So like, how does that so work? Now, now you really opened up the can of words. They can't do this in two minutes, right? <laughs> this, is a, this is an hour long thing. And very, very soon. So, so say everybody suddenly thinks they've got a data product, particularly on the, the, M, the ML side of things. Well, I'm, I'm building a derived data product because I'm building some insights. And I stop that, right? You, you are building insights. You have an, uh, an, an analytical product. I have created a report that does something. And that's not what we define in our domains as a data product per se, right? A data product is sort of, you know, a strategic asset that's aligned to the core business core platforms that's reusable across many, many things. And yeah, the ML ops team will take that and hopefully, you know, build some derived insights and do it. But that is not a data product. It's an insight. It's a report. It's an, it's an analytical product, right? And they don't, they're free to change at any time. The CEO wants to change his analytical product. So you have to start really sort of thinking about what is product with a capital P, stuff to be reused that's generic, and, and product with a little P, which is I'm building my use case, I own it, I can change it because I own the use case, I own distribution, I own the client relationship. And a data mesh, we have these producers who don't own the relationship out. They, they, they face off to many, many consumer teams, right? And it's capital P product. And then we have these many little teams, small P products, and they're, they're free, to, free to play a different kind of game with how they manage it. Yeah, I mean, this This is a very, very big topic, actually. Uh, and I don't think we've got to the bottom of it ourselves fully, to be honest, because derived data products are ultimately pro- data, pro- data products derived off other data products, right? So wh- where does that stop? I think the ownership model is still the same, right? Whoever builds it owns it, right? Uh, so that piece is relatively clear. I think the challenge comes, and we have seen the evolution of this, where 
a multitude of teams have gone and done similar derivations, right? And said, I'm going to do this transformation, create my own view of the data product. What you will see is that when all of these things converge, actually the base data product evolves, right? Because if someone's having to do the same transformation across 10 derived data products, you start shifting left. And that's where it pushes the change onto the base data product to start evolving. Because if it's a common piece of functionality let's call it right which everyone's having to do surely it can be done in one place there's economies of scale there the other thing that and i do not have an answer for this i'll be honest is what about the derived what do we stop teams from building derived data products off derived data products are they generally consumable are they just use case aligned derived data products and i think there is a few combinations there right and the mesh is trying to avoid the chaining problem right which is handoff between one team to another so i think the the real uh, crux of the matter here is that derived data products should be built off base data products yeah your core data products and that's as far as it goes any evolution of that you start creating the chaining problem which is another etl tool the mart in the middle a warehouse in the middle a lake or whatever so I think that those are the two sort of foundational pieces uh, that we align to. Any more than that is very, very edge case like, right? But fundamentally, you focus on those two. And, and so, so to me, it's cap, product with a capital P, strategic investment with money to evolve this for years, right? You know, will evolve. It's a strategic asset. It has capital backing it up, you know, kind of thing. Whereas probably little P is, well, I built it for use case and I can change it in one and maybe I can throw it away because nobody else is particularly dependent on me. I, I can turn it off. And then there's something between. Sonny's sort of alluding to where we might have some source system line capital P products. We might say, well, to do, you know, a universal view for big institutional clients across these kind of business system domains, I need to create a data set that is combined. A question, is that a capital P product with investment, life is going to last for years? You know, it has to be governed, change management. You can't just, oh, I, I lost the team this year. I'm not bothering. I walked away, right? No, 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 no. This is, this is you know, a, a strategic asset. It can't have its budget cut. On the consumption side, use cases and your ML stuff in your little P product is like, yeah, you know, it's funded as it goes along. It has use as it goes along, not, you know. You know, it seems like the biggest thing in the world to the MLOps, uh, you know, sponsor. But essentially, you know, w you know, it, it, it's a use case, right? It's making analytical outcome insights. It's not like if somebody switches off, we've just turned off a strategic asset and we, ha we have this massive impact that we, you know, like, oh, my God, we just stopped sending data to our external clients that they need for, the, you know, the reg reporting. So, yeah, the, there's graduations here. And, and, and that kind of, like, understanding product with a capital P, you know, and, and whatever, I think people – Organizations, that's one of the things that's sort of is going in. You think people understand that and they just don't. I think everything's a product. It's, it's not necessarily a, a, a strategic asset. Well, yeah, and I think that that lowercase p product is, is, again, that like when you've got that initial use case and you're working with that in that alpha, it's a lowercase p because you're not putting it out exactly. on the freaking match. Yeah, yeah. Start with little p and then evolve it to big p. But one, so if you're doing it to yourself, you can kind of switch it off. You know, you're doing a use case. Oh, no, I, I put the data in and I'm getting my analytics and I'm doing some decision making. Well, if I switch off, it's, you know, it's my decision, right? When you start sharing a beta product, it's like, no, no, you're making a commitment, right? You know, if you share this, you can't take it away. Be really careful what you expose them. Just throw everything and, you know, add it. 
and and then maybe still beat it. But the point where it says no, no, it's open for general consumption, and, and there's five or six use cases coming off, and you know there's the self service reporting and the API gateway and all this other stuff is happening. Then then you know uh, governance is making sure that thing won't get defunded and switched off because all this impact, right? And building a data mesh is we, one of the things we do is make sure we understand who's using the use cases. We can mine the logs and stuff so we can say who's using what data when, so we can show insights like. Are people using this product? How many people? When did they last use it? If you told them to migrate from product version one to product version two, we can tell you whether it's still being used, queried in the last month, right? So it's blast so radius, it's blast radius, right? Ultimately, and uh, when teams are starting to look at base data products, generally the the blast radius is much higher, right? So if you create a valuation data product within fund accounting, that's going to be used by a lot of teams. Right. Whereas if you create a bespoke use case aligned data product, let's call it the analytical data product. That's just you. Right. The only impact that happens is to you. Right. So, yeah, th this is such a big topic. I mean, we could do a couple of hours on this. There's so much to talk about on this one. So, so you, you come back to you asked me very early. Well, what mistakes people make? Mistakes people make is think data mesh is like they ingest the data and they're done. And they spend a lot of time <laughs> gilding the lily and over polishing in data ingestion. Like all these questions about uh, consumption and evolution of the product and, and whatever, those are the really interesting challenges. Um, uh, and that's why you need to talk to us who've been there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But there is one topic that we didn't necessarily touch on, right? And I think it is of very keen interest to us is typically what you will see the, 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 the tendency with organizations is, right, we've got data in the mesh. Can we now use this for operational purposes? Right. And this is the one I keep bringing back to play all the time. Right. Do not put your data mesh in the critical path of your operational flow. Right. The mesh is in the analytical plane. The amount. Of, I mean, very recently someone said, great. Can we use the mesh to build an MDM? And it's like, uh, no, it's it is not MDM. Right. And and this is exactly the thing. So if we if we you will see this challenge, anyone who's like looking to build a mesh or already underway, you will see this. We see it everywhere. Right. Is that whoever has a data mesh has the tendency. Can I actually put this in the critical path? And the answer is no. This operates in the analytical plane. It is not in the operational plane. Keep them separate. Separation of concerns. Oh, so, yeah, I've got a mesh musings that will have come out uh, between when uh, we've between when uh, we've had this conversation and when other people will, will be able to listen to it on that exact topic of. If you are putting your data products in your operational path of of actual transactions, right, of actual interactions, yes, of course, operational systems should consume data from the mesh. Duh, right? Like that's just a, a yes, but it shouldn't be for that real time actual need, right? It's like, oh, okay, we're going to every system should be able to to use the mesh to update themselves, right? But it's not in that critical path. It's not in that actual um, what is the live interaction because then you're always going to optimize for your live interaction. And then analytics becomes a second class concern no matter what. You're going to do blocking to prevent like large scale queries, all this stuff. Yes, 100%. It, it and and so if if you look at the you know Shermax paper and the book and whatever it always says analytical everywhere and I, I feel like I should have a like a swear box if you say data product without saying analytical data product you should be you know, find a dollar right because the people who don't if you work in this domain you understand it's about analytical data product if you're the business sponsor or team being told the data mesh and you hear data product you, you kind of go operational data product and so so we just we need to keep on saying the word analytical and then maybe they say what do you mean by analytical and we say well you know 
because we're doing this, we can get away with doing all of that, like uh, columnar data stores on cloud with like slightly higher latency, that the magic will happen. But the moment you want to put it on the operational path, no, 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 it's a bunch of technologies you're going to have to use that are designed for operational path, which don't do analytics very well. Yeah, and that's that's a very key thing. If latency is crucial, optimize for latency, but then you start exactly. and you don't optimize yep. for uh, queryability and analytics. And yeah. Um, and and, and, and there's, there's a huge amount. Yeah, and the, the number one thing is, Oh well, I'm doing analytical data. Surely I'm doing streaming, <laughs> low latency. Uh, like if I seriously, if if I had a thousand bucks for every time I heard that, like I w- I wouldn't be working. You know, I would have paid off the mortgage a couple of times, right? Yeah, it it's it's um, such a it, it frustrates me so much because it's this constant thing that comes up. But a, a little thing that you said in there, Simon, was um, analytical data product. I, it's actually um, a pattern that I tell people is to differentiate. Like Jamac would love for people to use data quantum because then it actually differentiates. So, because data product in people's heads means so many different things versus a mesh data product, an analytical data product, or whatever domain data product that you make it differentiated so that you're not. <laughs> That, that you can make people say, this is the bound of what we're talking about. So um, we we've, obviously we could go on and on and on, but I, I know you've got to hop here in, in a bit. So um, is there anything that we didn't cover that you'd, you'd like to, or is there um, any way that you'd kind of want to wrap up any point that you want to kind of hammer back on or anything like that? So, so I think we covered quite a bit. There's so much more we can talk about, right? But I think the, the one thing I want to try and close off, right? So us at Ace Energy, we are establishing a data practice, right? We get all our SMEs together and we are constantly brainstorming on all the different topics, emerging patterns in the industry. And we'd like to hear from you, right? So whoever's listening, if you're keen to talk to us, share our experience, also listen to your experience about it, right? So feel free to reach out at data at esynergy.co.uk. Yeah, and we'll drop that in the show notes. Yeah, and I just want to say, you know, big thank you, Scott, for having us on and also, you know, doing the endless legwork in the community, you know, and and, and responding and to, to lots of, you know, lots of comments on LinkedIn and, and lots of debate and stuff. You're doing an absolutely sterling job. Um, God bless you. <laughs> and thank you, Zamak, actually. Thank you, Zamak, as well, right? I mean, great job with the pattern, right? So thank you both. Yeah, it's, it's amazing how well Jamak's original article has held up. So, um, so the, the, if people want to follow up with you directly, we've got the data at esynergy.co.uk. We'll drop that um, email in the show notes, but if they want to follow up with you directly as well, best place is, is that LinkedIn, anything that you... LinkedIn, yeah. LinkedIn's ideal. Okay. Anything specifically you want to have people uh, reach out to you about where you can give a call to action or just generally if people are doing data match? Uh, all things data mesh are new, right? And I think watch the space, read the material. Every time you read it again, you will get new insights, right? And it be keyed into the community because we are learning from the communities ourselves, right? It's not like we've got it all figured out. So it's about giving back to the community. If you have learnings, share, right? Come to Scott's channel, right? Yeah. <laughs> share. I keep I keep trying to say like if if the thing has benefited you pass it on right like benefit others uh, that this pattern will take five years longer than it should if we're not a little bit open and a little bit vulnerable about hey we're trying this is this a stupid idea or we tried mm. this and it was a stupid idea <laughs> right exactly totally. Okay. 
Well, uh, thank you uh, so much, Sonny and Simon, for the time today and, um, you know, the the great work that you've done and, and look forward to obviously having probably more conversations down the line. Um, and thank you, everyone, as well for listening. Thank you. Thank you. I'd again like to thank my guests today, Sonny Jaisingani and Simon Massey, who are both principal consultants at the consulting company eSynergy. You can find a link to their LinkedIn's in the show notes as per usual. Thank you. Hopefully that interview episode was really useful for you. Please do consider getting in touch with guests from the show, from these episodes. Most have said they'd really love people to reach out to them. And please, as well, if you've got a minute, rate and review the podcast somewhere. It really is honestly super helpful for other people looking into kind of data podcasts to kind of get this in front of them. Data Mesh Radio is again provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It's produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. In April of 2023, I left Data Stacks, who were wonderful in getting the Data Mesh community stuff started. So give them a shout for streaming and real time AI needs. But I left to start my own industry analyst kind of information as a service firm. Our offerings are affordable and you can do them on a one off or a month to month basis. You know, read kind of Throw it on the credit card. Don't worry about like going through purchasing and things like that. The services include lots of practitioner roundtables, you know, one-on-one data mesh kind of planning or feedback sessions and tailored introductions to other data mesh practitioners that are focused around your topics of interest. You know, what, what are you actually running into challenges with? We also have some free programs around introductions and roundtables that people can kind of check out as well. Check the show notes or just go to datameshunderstanding.com for more info or helpful resources. As always, if you have suggestions for guests or topics, please do get in touch as well. And have a wonderful rest of your day. Now let's hear that funky outro music.